My guest this week is Sarah Cruz, the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery in Salina, Kansas, which is the first all-natural burial ground in Kansas, and the president of the National Home Funeral Alliance. Sarah also has a background in hospice and music. In fact, when we first met at the NHFA conference last year, she told me she lives in Salina, I shared that my favorite band has a song with that name, and I'm pretty sure we both started singing it at the same time. So this week on Death at Sec, Sarah Cruz and I talk about conservation burial, home funerals, music, and mortality. Solana, I'm as nowhere as I can be. Could you add some somewhere to me? All oh, Kansas, I'm kneeling. All oh, Kansas, please. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on Death at Sec. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, I wanted to start off by talking about the cemetery that you founded. That's correct, right? You founded it? That's correct. And it's Heartland Prairie Cemetery in Salina, Kansas. Right. My understanding is the land was donated by an organization called the Land Institute, which is an agricultural research organization. And that one really unique aspect of this cemetery compared to perhaps some other green cemeteries is that an integral part of what you're doing is restoring it to a natural uh, native prairie environment, putting in walking trails and things like that. But it's it's not going to be a big lawn. That's right. Going to be a kind of wild prairie. Yeah. So can you tell us about sort of how that project all got started? Well, I became really Yeah, I became really interested in um, natural burial prior to moving to Kansas. We moved here six years ago, this month, actually. And while we lived in Arizona for 18 years prior to this, and and, um, I was working for hospice, I am a musician, and so I spent a lot of time um, playing music for... uh, families and and patients on hospice, and then was often asked to play at the funeral. So I attended a lot of funerals and just began to really wonder about the way we were doing conventional burial in this country and found out about natural burial after reading, while reading, um, uh, Mark Harris's book, Grave Matters. Uh, Grave Matters, right? And so, started thinking about it there. I was, uh, I spoke with a couple of ranchers that had taken part of their land and put it in a conservation easement, and in Arizona, thinking maybe I could pursue opening a, a green burial ground there. And then um, my husband took this job in Kansas, so we ended up moving to Kansas. So he works as the director of research at the Land Institute. He's a 
agroecologist and was hired um, to be on the staff there. So it seemed like a pretty natural fit for the Land Institute. Uh, they have uh, quite a few acres of land around here. Most they're using for their um, uh, experimental projects. But I wrote a proposal to the board of directors at the Land Institute and talked about my uh, vision for opening a natural burial ground. At that point, I didn't even realize that there were no other complete um, natural burial grounds, uh, green cemeteries that were devoted to ecological practices in the entire state. There were, there's a few conservation, or excuse me, um, conventional cemeteries that have opened up part of their cemetery to green burial but this is the first one that's devoted to um, all natural practices. So anyway, the, the board of directors looked over the idea and thought it was a good idea and they donated the land. Um, so after that, we formed a nonprofit. The Land Institute is a nonprofit organization. And in order to receive the gift of the land, we also needed to form as a nonprofit, um, which was our intention anyway. Um, and yeah, so the idea of the prairie restoration just seemed like um, a natural progression of things. I, because most of the land around here is prairie, and that certainly was prairie prior to it being cultivated. And so we're just bringing it back to the way that the land used to look. So, so how, well, first of all, how big is the cemetery? Well, the, the full acreage is 13 and a half acres. I would say that the, what I refer to as the burial meadow, um, is probably closer to eight acres. You have some woods also, is that correct? Right. We have woods along, um, both the east and the west side of the land, and we've put trails through there. And we will be maintaining trails throughout the cemetery as well once the tall grasses and the flowers, um, prairie flowers come in. Mm -hmm. And so then what's the capacity? Because I understand you're selling both um, burial sites for whole body burial and then also for cremated remains. That's right. We've estimated that we'll be putting about um, four to five hundred plots per acre mm. in there, um, which is half to less than half of what is uh, usually in a conventional cemetery. And that's We're a looking at combination of full body and cremated plots? That's correct. Yeah. But we're looking at probably about 4,000 burials in the, in the eight acres. Yeah. Well, that's a lot. So, so then how are you, are, are you staggering the burials to try to um, coordinate with the restoration process? So in other words, are you burying in a particular part and then you're restoring the prairie or are you putting the burials sort of staggered out in the whole acreage? We are staggering them out really in the whole acreage, but we started we started the prairie restoration in the northern end of the property. And I think it's about three acres that we 
planted with native prairie seeds and then replanted some seedlings that were grown and donated to the project uh, via University of Kansas. And there's a prairie restoration lab that had some leftover plugs that we could use. So we transplanted probably 300 um, prairie species out there or plants out there. And we've had three burials out there so far, two full body burials and one cremated remains burial. And that's all. But on that acreage, those three acres, that's where we've started the restoration. It takes a long time to restore a prairie, and it looks kind of scrappy at first, and there's a lot of annual plants that come in. So we realized we were going to do it in like three sections, and just this past summer or fall, we decided that we wanted to continue with the planting of the native um, species in the entire um, eight acres of the meadowlands. So now we've we've got native prairie planted throughout the entire acreage, so we can really um, continue with our burials throughout the whole property now instead of keeping it up in those first three acres. It's it's really interesting that you, and, and I understand why it's set up as a nonprofit, and maybe you would have wanted it to be a nonprofit anyway, um, if you weren't required to, to, uh, because the land was being donated to you. But I, I've talked to a lot of different people who are really interested in figuring out an economic model that works to try and establish their own conservation burial grounds or green um, burial grounds, usually on a nonprofit basis. So one of the things I was interested in was reading on your website that you don't, you're not allowing people to buy on a pre-need basis because some of the folks that I've talked to have discussed that as a way of raising funds. Absolutely. Yeah, that is the way. And I think there are, you know, there's all sorts of models of how to make this an economical, viable um, endeavor. Uh, We just chose not to do it in that way. That's not our model. Um, Well, what's what's the thought process about not letting people buy on a pre-need basis and just at need? Well, part of that is I just feel like we are such a mobile society and recently uh, a good friend of mine in Colorado, her, her mom died and she found out that they, her mom had inherited like four plots in some cemetery that was like nowhere near where they live now. And no one else in the family wanted to be buried there. Now, granted, people from Kansas tend to stay in Kansas. <laughs> There's a lot of people who have been here for generations, you know. Um, but I really just didn't want to be keeping track of people's money. And if they, you know, bought a plot out there right now and then, you know, die 30, 40 years from now in who knows where, North Carolina, and, you know, it, it just seemed like too much of a hassle to have to keep track of that. And also for the time when, you know, we move away and hand it over to someone else, they can make their own decisions or about how, how they're going to do that. But I didn't want to hand over a cemetery that has sold, you know, however many plots. And then that person is like, oh, okay, great. Well, there's only... <laughs> 
I only have this much room left to sell and just waiting on waiting on those plots to be uh, used. So how, what's the community's response um, been like to this project? Well, I get a lot of talks, educational talks at different uh, civic groups and at churches. And I give classes through the library, talking with people about green burial and what it is and also home funerals. And um, for the most part, it's been really well received. I think people are very curious and people are very much interested in um, sort of returning to a simpler way of doing things, you know, that is more consistent with caring for the land and you know, there's a lot of farmers around here. They understand decomposition and. Well, and there's a lot of little farm cemeteries, right? I mean, because my, mm-hmm. my family's all from Nebraska, which is not that far away from Salina and right. uh, Eastern Nebraska. And, you know, all my relatives are buried in these little country cemeteries where frankly, the native grasses are taking back over. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it's not, right. it, it's not um, intentionally restored um, prairie, but, some of them look a lot like prairie <laughs> at this yep. point. Um, yep. And so that's a really comfortable thing, right? The The biggest difference is probably that there are tombstones in those cemeteries and you're not going to have tombstones. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a new way of doing an old thing, right? And we are approaching this with the intention of, of restoring the land to native prairie. And so that's a different, you know, we used to do burials, like you said, all the time like this in these little farm cemeteries. And, and I tell people in my talks, you know, they, they can check with their little community cemetery and find out if they would accommodate a green burial. You know, a lot of those little places used to do it that way. And then, you know, in order to manage the land, it's just, easier to require that people purchase a vault and it's intentionally sort of reclaiming old ways of doing things with a new, uh, an eye towards uh, the environment. And, and, and I think it is very interesting how, um, you know, some of that, some of those arguments and some of those n- more modern trends are playing in more rural areas, right? Because I think mm. often we hear about sort of funeral reform ideas as originating from urban areas and and being new thoughts as opposed to sort of essentially neo-traditional. So it's, it's just mm-hmm. interesting to see whether or not those kinds of ideas are appealing um, to people. Right. And I... You know, most people, like I said, have had a positive response to this and are really curious about it. Mm-hmm. And then again, we've only had two two burials, two full body burials out there, and one cremated remains. So, I mean that that's for a lot of reasons. You know, you don't just open a cemetery and suddenly people are dying to get in, right? <sighs> So there's, there's that, you know, it goes at the pace of life. And there's also um, a lot of people have already purchased their plots um, at the family cemetery, like in the county or the community that their family has always been buried in. And, and so, and so 
we, we wait. Yeah. What about from the perspective of getting the cemetery set up um, with the state? Did, are you regulated by the state? Was that difficult to uh, explain to them what you're trying to accomplish or? Not particularly. No, it was just simply opening a cemetery. And, you know, uh, we wrote, uh, you have to file with the secretary of state's office and there are forms to fill out. And we had to go through the zoning department in the County where the cemetery, where the land is and get a special use permit for the land, which had been zoned agricultural. But as far as the state was concerned, as soon as we had um, the trust instrument in place, which is a permanent maintenance fund here in Kansas, it's uh, only $10,000. I've heard in other states it can be upwards of you know 25000 and up to 100000 that you have to put into that, uh, put into a permanent maintenance fund, trust fund, you know, and, and then with every sale of every plot, a percentage goes in to that. You never, you can use the interest, but you never touch the principal. It just grows over time. So once that was in place, they were, you know, we were registered with the state Yeah. as a cemetery. They really were not concerned whether we were doing, you know, there, there are not laws about how you have to have be embalmed or be, you know, use a vault. All of those are cemetery policies. And so we just had different policies and that it was that simple. Yeah. I think some of those minimum requirements that you mentioned are a stumbling block for some folks. Cause I've talked to people in North Carolina um, and here you have to have a minimum of 30 acres and you have to have, it's either fifty dollars or $100,000 in that perpetual care fund before you even get started. So for oh somebody who's trying to set up a green cemetery on a nonprofit basis, those are both, um, you know, especially if you want, you, you want to be located somewhat near one of the urban areas and with the cost of land, uh, those are pretty, right. pretty prohibitive. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we did a um, crowdsource online fundraising campaign to raise our startup funds. And it was just really successful. Uh, there were a lot of uh, local people locally as well as nationally who supported the project. And we ended up raising the $10,000 and um, extra funds for some equipment and other things that we needed to get started. So I know you've only had a couple of, of um, burials in the cemetery so far. Were, were those families that also chose home funerals or did they come through a traditional funeral home route? It uh, varied. Um, the first burial was the cremated remains burial. And that was a young woman who died in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And so, um, no, they did not have a home funeral for her. But they knew about the cemetery because they'd been by my booth at a, um, there's an event here that is kind of around Earth Day. And it's, it's called Discover Salina Naturally. So I always have had a, I've had a booth out there about the Green Cemetery. And so she and her sister had been by and seen that and thought, oh, what a cool idea. You know, not knowing that one of them was going to tragically die two years later she's she's there and then uh the other one was a woman on hospice 
about in a town about two hours south of here. And she had thought that she was going to be cremated. And then she watched a video on um, YouTube about what cremation entails. And she thought, oh, I don't really want that. I want a natural burial. And she did a Google search and found out about Heartland Prairie Cemetery and told her family that she wanted to be buried up there. Now, they worked with a funeral director in their town, and he contacted us and um, drove her up here. And he was great. He was a funeral director that was really intrigued by this whole idea. And, you know, we spent a lot, he spent a lot of time looking over the guidelines on our webpage, and he was very um, helpful. And, and so that, that was... Uh, that was that one. And then uh, the third was a, a fellow here, and that was our first shroud burial. And um, he had something of a home funeral, but also um, they worked with a local funeral home. Um, they did some of the after-death care immediately following his death, but then he needed, um, in order for family members to get here, he was kept in the refrigeration unit, wrapped in his shroud until uh, they were ready for the burial. But then the family picked up his body and brought it out to the, to the cemetery. So that was kind of a hybrid um, home funeral and um, traditional. Well, so that just shows sort of the diversity of models that people can use, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a... Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And we are totally open to working with, you know, however it works for the families. Yeah. So we had Lee Webster on a couple weeks ago, um, and Lee talked a little bit about um, National Home Funeral Alliance and also about Green Burial. Um, But you're currently the president of the board of NHFA. So I I was hoping that you could uh, tell us a little about, you know, sort of your role and what the organization is trying to accomplish and, and really how all this home funeral uh, business sort of fits in with, with the conservation burial that you're working on. So the NHFA, as you know, is the National Home Funeral Alliance. And uh, it's a nonprofit organization and that was conceived in uh, 2009 and sort of formally began in 2010. So uh, we are dedicated to the educating and advocating for families and communities who choose to care for their own at death. So we have a bunch of information on our website, and I think um, you can post things on at the on your notes, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll include in the show notes links to the websites and fantastic. So um, anyone can join the NHFA membership is free. All you have to do is sign up online, and and once you do that, you'll be receiving our newsletters and all kinds of updates. So I just want everyone to know that we hold a national conference every other year. So our next one will be in early October of 2019. And the theme this coming year is the head, hands, and heart of home funerals, weaving art and ritual with the practical. And it's going to be another stellar conference. Um, You were at the one in 2017. I was. In fact, it it popped up in my photo memories. Oh, wonderful. Would it be all right if I talk a little bit about our fall fundraiser, which is coming up? Absolutely. Please do. Cool. 
Well, we're holding that um, November 1st through 4th. And again, you can follow us on Facebook or um, if you sign up and you're a member, you'll get updates in the newsletter, like I said. But we're going to be holding evening conference calls each day with much the same theme as next year's conference. So two of our board members have made a demonstration video on after-death care that we'll make available um, on Facebook and also on our YouTube channel prior to a question and answer session with the two of them. We're going to have a session on how to advocate for families through communicating with your local coroner because the coroner may or may not be aware of a family's right to care for their own. And um, we'll have a session also on using music, poetry, art, and creating rituals for home funerals. So all of these sessions, there's more than that, actually, but those three are, are definitely um, set. And they're all offered freely. And, of course, during this time, we'll be gratefully receiving donations. Great. Yeah. Oh, and we're also in the planning stages of offering our very own podcast where we'll be inviting people to share their home funeral stories. So there's really a lot going on and it's such an exciting time to be part of this movement. Awesome. Well, let, let me ask you a couple questions about home funerals, if I may, because um, in funeral sure. and cemetery uh, law class today, we started talking about home funerals a little bit. So there, there were a couple things that sort of came up in class that are um, at the top of my mind. So, you know, one thing is when I talk to different people who have sort of different roles in funeral service, you know, industry versus, um, you know, folks who are involved in more reform-minded organizations, it seems like there's a pretty uh, strong difference of, I guess, opinion about how popular some of these ideas are, right? So I, mm -hmm. I, you don't hear a lot of folks who are on the industry or the or the regulation side from the state's perspective who think that home funerals are really something that they need to be paying attention to and i and i it's just always sort of a striking contrast for me <laughs> you know to to talk yeah. to different groups of people who have very different perspectives but it seems like one of the big problems is there just isn't any data right Right, right. I think that's true. And it's hard to collect that data. I mean, we've been trying to at NHFA um, to, you know, sort of gather information in uh, where our members are, how many home funerals that they are aware of. Um, if uh, someone is, is offering their services as a home funeral guide to um, report back to NHFA and let us know, you know, if they've, uh, facilitated any families in holding a home funeral. So it's, it is really hard though to, to get that information gathered. Um, and it's really so grassroots. It's just happening in, you know, it's sort of quietly happening in communities all around the U S but we just don't hear about it as much. Right. Do, do you have any sense of how many home funeral guides there are? Ah, I really don't. I mean, we have, um, upwards of 1,600 members in the National Home Funeral Alliance, but that's all sorts of people. I, I'm not sure how what percentage of those members are, are sort of trained as home funeral guides. Right. Um, and how many of them are just people who are interested or they've had the experience of a home funeral or they want to know more and they, they join because, you know, that's the place to get the information. Sure. 
And then, um, and then there's also a lot of funeral directors who are very open to trying to in, encourage families to get more involved, right? Absolutely. And we have a lot of members that, who are funeral directors. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally, certainly, I think it's, it's clear that this is a trend that's, uh, you know, um, sort of catching on. But trying to quantify that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is definitely difficult. Well, yeah, I agree with you. But and and one of the reasons I think is, and this is something that we were talking about today in class. We we're looking at the North Carolina statutes um, to try and figure out how difficult it would be to do a home funeral in North Carolina. And I know that on your website you have a map of the United States and depict the states that make it very difficult to do a home funeral. Even the states that we list as being what we call restrictive states, in those states, they have laws on the books that mandate that you hire a funeral director, and it's usually for one of two things, or both, and that is to sign the death certificate and or transport the body. And that doesn't prevent a family from doing the after-death care at home. They can, they can still do a home funeral, which is basically taking care of the body at home after death, keep the body there, but they have to hire a funeral director to sign that death certificate or to transport the body. Right. So um, even in those places, you can have a home funeral. There, were, there was a law on the books in Alabama, I believe, and then it, it, they removed it, but it was... Um, saying that you had to have a funeral director present at any memorial service, any funeral service. So that would be having to hire a funeral director to come into your home and stand there while you did your own thing, which seemed really um, an infringement on our, the rights, you know, our rights. So um, Nebraska has a similar law to that, though, too. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the difficult things with respect to the law because it's all on a state-by-state basis. There's very little consistency or uniformity from place to place. So I'm right. sure when you have a national organization and you're trying to educate people, um, just uh-huh. keeping track of what the rules are in 50 different states is a real challenge. Oh, it's a real challenge. Absolutely. That's why we just need really um, informed members in every state to be able to be reporting back to us. And we, you know, we keep pretty close, a close eye on uh, legislation as it's um, coming through or, you know, we, we work closely with the Funeral Consumers Alliance with Josh Slocum and we just keep an eye on all this stuff. And yeah, hopefully it'll be a change for the better. <laughs> you know, I think that so many of these re- regulations were written for the industry, and um, we really have to just keep an eye on it so that those regulations that are meant to regulate a professional industry don't hinder ordinary citizens sort of take, you know, ha- pursuing their innate right to care for their own at death. <laughs> 
Right. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I always challenge my students to view the law as a living, changing thing and that we all uh-huh. have the power to change. It's hard to change the law, but we, you know, that's what democracy is all about, right? Um, the hope, right. <laughs> the hope and the promise <laughs> that we can mold our system of laws to reflect what our values are. And part uh-huh. of the work of doing that is to try and understand what legitimate state interests there are. They have interests in, you know, vital statistics reporting and public health, but but trying to separate out what are some of the you know, false reasons, right? Or, or mm-hmm. historically dated reasons um, mm-hmm. from legitimate reasons. And, you know, there's protectionism throughout state codes and trying to figure out where that is and really piecing through the laws to try and figure out what we need to have and what's just interfering um, with the ways that we want to do things. That's a, that's an ongoing struggle, but that's why organizations like NHFA are so helpful, I think, because you're compiling information, you're educating people, and the only way to get change at all is through education. Mm-hmm. So did so you were, you started talking a little bit about how you got interested in this whole um, area when you were still in Arizona. And you, so you said you, well, why don't you just talk about your background a little bit, right? Because you've been sort of studying this whole area and involved in different aspects of it for a while. That's right. I actually started out um, after being a stay-at-home mom with my kids for many years. Uh, I've always had a close relationship with uh, the elders in my family and decided to go back to work. And I went to work in a nursing home and the activities section, you know, of the nursing home and started doing art and music with the residents. And it became clear that I had this capacity to be with people who were dying. And I was often called on to come to the room with my guitar and be with the person at the end of life. And that led me to hospice work. And I became trained as a bereavement counselor and also continued with my music. I call it music caregiving I didn't go to school to become a music therapist and um, really am not approaching it as a a sort of goal setting with therapy, but rather just providing sort of a comfort blanket of music. So I call it music caregiving and did a lot of that. And this is another piece that I started noticing was people on hospice were had all of this support and while they were help while they were caring for their loved one who was dying you know we brought in all these folks and they felt so supported and then the person dies and the funeral home is called and the body is taken away and then people would show up in my grief group a little while later and just be like, oh, hospice was so wonderful. And then, you know, it was almost like getting hit by a bus or something when the person died and it was all taken away from them. And I felt like I was trying to figure out what it is that is missing. Where have we, um, where have we sort of lost our way? And 
again, I read about home funerals in, in Grave Matters, and it made so much sense to me. And I thought that's the missing gap, you know, that, that we have, that, that we've sort of lost the wisdom. You know, when people talk about um, home funerals and green burial, they often, the first question is like, well, is this going to cost less? And people come at it from a financial perspective. And that's kind of easy to put a number on, but I don't think that we can quantify what we've lost as a society when we've taken away, you know, we've professionalized this whole after-death care industry and outsourced the care of our dead to, to an industry. And so that, I think, is what this movement is, is bringing back. What kind of healing, what kind of um, comfort will taking a step closer to having a real meaningful involvement in the care of our dead, how will that, how will that help our um, families and our communities sort of heal? <laughs> So, I mean, I've talked to a number of people on this podcast so far, and these these sort of themes keep coming up. Amy Cunningham um, was talking about trying to imbue some ritual in the removal of a body. That was so beautiful. Wasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, and so what you just said about people feeling like they got hit by a truck, you know, I think it it echoes that, right? That Mm -hmm. That people felt... Um, supported and surrounded, um, and then suddenly the body is just sort of mechanically removed. And okay, and Josh Slocum uh, talks about the funeral, the modern funeral, as something you have to get through. Like the the death <sighs> is an ordeal, and then the funeral is another ordeal, and that it's lost nice. its place as a community and a comforting, you know, an uh, event and opportunity to grieve. So it it is interesting because. Um, I do think that there is a really strong narrative out there that people are interested in, in green burial and home funerals and cremation for that matter, um, Mm -hmm. because it's cheaper uh, or it's perceived to be cheaper. And I think Mm -hmm. that folks who have adopted that narrative are really missing the very powerful thing, um, that the three of you and Lee and others have talked about, um, in terms of people searching for meaning and ritual. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I also think that, you know, hospice has done a great service to, to our society in getting us to understand that we can care for our own as they're dying at home. And I, I also think that part of the reason that people often, you know, most people who've had an experience with hospice, it's been a good experience. I mean, I have talked to some who, who haven't had a good experience with it. But I think a lot of what that, that good feeling is, is based in is not so much of how great all the support that the hospice team gave. I mean, surely that's a huge part of it. But it's partly because the family had been given permission and had been empowered to understand that they could do this themselves, that they get to, they're taking care of their loved ones. So they've been empowered to do so. And that empowerment 
is taken away when we we sort of cease to 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 give permission and empower as soon as the the person dies. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, and I've seen these strong connections. I mean, there's so many people who are involved. <clears throat> excuse me, in funeral reform. Um, in various aspects, and also have a history of involvement in hospice. And I always thought that was interesting, but I'm really starting to believe that but for hospice, we wouldn't have all this other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That, that hospice was the gateway for the society to realize it could, it could, um, like, oh, yeah, we could do this differently. <laughs> yeah. All of it. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a, I think, a history that hasn't been written. <laughs> But, but uh, hopefully somebody will. I think this is the fourth time somebody's mentioned um, grave matters on the podcast. <laughs> is that right? Wow. Yeah, yeah. That book made a big um, difference. You know, we talk a lot about Jessica Midford's book too, and that was in the '60s. But I really think that um, Mark Harris's book uh, was a catalyst for so much uh, change uh, in the nineteen. 19- no, in the 2000s. That came out in 2007, I think. Yeah, I, I, I've got a copy of it, but I'm not sure what year it came out. Yeah. but Well, you know, but Jessica Mitford wasn't interested in any of these things. Jessica Mitford no. was interested in the cost of the funeral. I mean, she was exactly. all about the money, which probably is one of the reasons why there's this narrative that um, funeral reformers are just about cost also right because she was sort Mm. of the Mm -hmm. the godmother of the whole thing but there's been a number of people who've come along since then including mark and caitlin Dodie, and you know others who have written about um you know different aspects of it right more about right just the emotional healing and the societal healing and the you know the different pieces that that kind of go beyond just looking at the financial aspects of it, you right. know, healing the environment, you know, restore, restoring swaths of land to native prairie. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. I think that's, um, that's a really cool aspect of what you're doing. Well, I wanted, I, you've mentioned the music a couple of times. So I just wanted to talk about it for uh, a minute, um, just about music, because of course I have a little mini series on the podcast on music and mortality. Mm, I love that. So thank you. So you, I mean, you could fit in, you know, <laughs> I could have you back and we, you could just talk about music and, and, uh, and play songs. So oh, that'd be great. So, I'd love to. Great. So, so what kind of music, um, did you play in your hospice work? Were you playing your own work or you're playing songs that were comforting and familiar to people or did it really just sort of vary? It varied a lot, but I do play a lot of my own songs. Uh, when I'm playing for folks, um, even in the hospice setting and in the nursing home setting. Uh-huh. Now, um, I will also play familiar songs, hymns, whatever it is that the person um, relates to and wants to hear. I mean, I'm not a jazz musician, so <laughs> <laughs> can't do that very well. But, yeah. you know, there's always ways of bringing in music. But for myself, I would... I, I, I try to do songs. I, you know, I write songs and I sing and I like to sing songs that are soothing and that also have lyrics that uh, are provocative and that they may evoke memories 
or I have a song that I wrote for my parents on their 50th wedding anniversary, and it's got like a familiar sound to it. When I would play it in the nursing home, people would be like, oh, I haven't heard this song in years. Oh, wow. <laughs> when they'd never heard it, but yeah. they'd be singing along to the, to the chorus. And in that case, it would often um, evoke memories of their long marriage and of their sweetheart. And, and so we would have great conversations about that or um, ones that evoke nature imagery and that would lead to a whole conversation about, um, you know, places in nature that are close to someone's heart. Um, so did you, did you view the music as being like a conversation starter or? In some cases it was, I ended up getting a, pursuing a master's degree in spiritual care at, at end of life. And it was motivated by these experiences that I was having with um, hospice patients where people ended up, it, it's like the music provided this, this opening where people could, would have conversations with me and open up to me in ways that they weren't uh, able to open up to anyone else on the hospice team. And I, I really felt like the music was what was creating that. And, um, you know, it just touches us in our hearts when we hear music that, that we find soothing or brings tears to our eyes or makes us smile, you know? Yeah. And, and so I kind of felt like I was providing this spiritual care, for lack of a better word. I know that that can be a loaded word for some, but it's part of what is offered in the hospice, you know, paradigm. Sure. And um, I was kind of providing that care sort of through the back door because people would be like, oh, no, I don't I don't need to see your chaplain Um and they'd say, oh, well, would you like the, you know, our gal with her guitar to come in and sing some songs for you? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And then before you know it, I'm having these just like really profound, intimate conversations with people that would give us insight into how we could best continue, how we could best care for this person. Huh. So, yeah, it was really powerful. Huh. Well, music is a powerful thing. It really is. I'll tell you one story. I was there was a woman who came into our hospice house, and she was quite close to death, and she really wasn't um, uh, responsive to anyone. She wasn't she wasn't talking. She was very very near the end, and I came in quietly with my guitar, and I just started playing, and I just played some instrumental stuff for a little while, and then I sang a song that I'd written called For All This about gratitude. And I finished that song, and then just in the silence of the room, she says, she doesn't open her eyes, she just said, now I feel connected. Oh. And that was it. Wow. And those very well may have been her last words. Um, she died, like, later on that night. Wow. So that's the that's the power I think of of music and of 
offering music at that time. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I, I do hope that you'll come back on and we can talk more about your songwriting and um, have you share a couple songs with us. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Tanya. This has just been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Me too. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks again to Sarah Cruz for joining me today on Death at Sec. Come visit the show notes page at www.deathatsec.com to find links to Heartland Prairie Cemetery and the National Home Funeral Alliance. Thank you to David Childers and Riley Sherman for contributing the music for this episode and every episode of the podcast. And this week, hopefully the Avett brothers won't mind the 20-second clip of Salina at the beginning of the podcast. If you like Death at Sec, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe using whichever player you prefer and give us a five-star rating so we can continue to get the word out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>